Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, let's all go to the Atomic Cafe and continue our quest for all with SST 142, the Descendants LP, Milo Goes to College. Huge, huge record um, in general, but for us, Brant and I in particular, and we've got an amazing special guest. Yeah, Bill Stevenson's on the show. Awesome to have Bill on. Um, we mentioned it last episode, how cool it is to have had uh, Milo on for the all-LP, SST-112, and then to have Bill on. It's just fantastic. And I mean, you know, Milo couldn't have been cooler. Same with Bill. Totally. The, the thing that struck me about the interview coming up, too, is Bill is just like, you know, he doesn't put on airs, man. He is so genuine. Oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it just it just reeks of genuine Bill Stevenson. It's so cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, Bill's a Bill's a great guy. Yeah, we're so lucky. And Brent, is it a two parter? It's a two parter. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So it's so is it twoage? Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. Twoage. When we when we have our rap party, we have to have Bill over. Hey, he'd just oh, for sure. He'd be the life of the party. You can tell. Oh, I think so. Yeah, he's got some great stories. So hang in there and. Uh, We'll get to the Bill Stevenson interview right away here. First, Brant, we probably should uh, lay some spiels on the people. I'm going to call it spielage tonight. Okay. Can I do that? Yeah, of course. So give, give me some spielage. Okay. Ryan, I have a Henry Kaiser update. So I don't know if you've oh. been following his weekly solos that he's been putting out on the Cuneiform no. Records YouTube channel. No. So his latest one, weekly solo number 18, the whole thing is with Scott Colby. Oh, nice. Yeah, so they talk about the record Slide of Hand. Henry talks about Zoog's Rift, Crazy Backwards Alphabet. There's some old footage from a jazz festival somewhere with Scott. There's some footage from that eclectic electric instructional video. He talks about nice. name he plays a new song that Scott Colby wrote. Apparently he's working on new music, so there's some great stuff there. People should check that out. Wow, cool. Well, we, yeah, we had uh, Hank on the show not too long ago, and Scott Colby, we'll see him at episode SST 151. Look forward to that one. Yeah, can't wait. Okay, Ryan, we got a CD in the mail from our podcast pal Tim Harding from the band Always August. It's it's a record or I guess a CD that he compiled called called the Always August Anthology 85 to 88. Right. There, there's live stuff on there, some radio show performances, some covers like What Are Their Names, a song by David Crosby uh, co-written with Jerry Garcia and Neil Young. That one's recorded live at the Anti Club, which was during that SST barbecue that Tim talks about in our interview with him. They do oh, a, no way. Yeah. They do a <laughs> Hawkwind cover, Psychedelic Warlord, with drummer Jeff Douglas on vocals. There's recordings from CBGBs, including a killer version of About Time from a show they played with Dos Domin and the Leaving Trains. Ooh. It's just what a bill. Yeah. It's just chock full of goodies. So, Tim, if you're listening to this, you should put that up on Bandcamp so people can check it out. Yeah, sweet tunes, man. I'm into, you know what? 
I was a late bloomer when it came to Always August, but um, I'm digging it. Better late than never, man. That's right. Hey, is that, and when you mentioned that barbecue, is that the one where they were like, Greg Ginn and Chuck would be like, hey, is there anything else we could do for you? And he's like, I don't know, you could throw us a barbecue when we're in town? And they actually did? Is that the one? That's the one, yep. Oh, sweet. Okay, Ryan, strap in. I've got the L section of the get this shit off my phone uh, spiel. Jesus. All right. Do we have a name for the L section? Yeah, man. It's called, it's, it's, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> All right, let's do this. Get it? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right. Come okay. on, come on, come on. I want to get to Bill Stevenson. Let's go. Okay. Here's one on the SS tree. Left Insane, speaking of Bill Stevenson. Oh, nice. We've talked about this record before. Toolbox from 1990 is the name of the record. I am in love with this album. Paul Radabaugh is the guitar player and the vocalist. Uh, David Gomez is the bass player. Tony Cicero, this is the band he did after Saccharin Trust. And remember, Ryan, there's an interview with Tony on our blog, mojackpod.com, where he talks about all kinds of stuff, including Left Insane. Yep. This was produced by Bill Stevenson and Stefan. There's a single that actually precedes it that I need to hear where Stefan plays bass. I bet you have it, but I've never heard it. Yeah, I've got the single and that uh, LP. Yep, they're good. Yeah. Okay, The Love Soars. Great band led by ex-humper Scott Deluxe Drake. They actually broke up this year and released this final album to Bandcamp right, like, I think, like, after they split up. It's called Bats from Planet Skull. It's really good. I love all the Love Soars stuff. And... He, Scott already has a new band called Gorilla Teens that's, that have released a, a few songs to Bandcamp. Hmm. Okay, another one on the SS tree. Lab, Live Free or Die. 1998, Santa Cruz Skateboards actually released this. The band is Bill Torgerson, Mike Nider of Blast. This is the band they formed sometime after the album Take the Manic Ride in 1989. Dave Cooper had left, and Dave Dinsmore joins on bass. I'm assuming he's related to Clifford, but I'm not sure. Clifford leaves on vocals, and Mike Nider takes over, and they release a 7-inch as a trio under the name Blackout with Mike on vocals. Brant Bjork joins on second guitar, and they release a 7-inch in 1987 as Lab. Then Brant leaves, and they release this CD EP in 1988 as a trio again. It's very Fu Manchu-esque, but it's really mm. cool. Another one on right the on. SS tree, The Last, Look Again. This is from a bootleg of their unreleased 1980 album. We're going to be seeing them in about 50 episodes, and I can't wait. Uh, also, Bill played with them way later on, Bill Stevenson. And Carl. And Carl. Here's another podcast shout-out for my favorite podcast paisley stage raspberry and rhyme they do a panel discussion about this record that's just great super fan uh, lena lintonwa and tom stevens of the long riders do this panel and they talk about all kinds of stuff including sst apparently offered to put this record out at one point but it didn't pan out so i would recommend that leeway desperate measures 
crossover thrash from New York City, 1991 profile records. Here's one that I recently put on my phone, Ryan, after we talked about it, because I haven't listened to this band in years. Like Hell, Snowball's Chance. <laughs> 1996, Minneapolis band, Frank, Th- Frank Throw Up, <laughs> the bass player. We used to see this band play all the time. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Frank used to wear like roofing knee pads, and he'd go right down on his knee pads while he was just crushing it on his bass. Frank Throw Up. Yeah. Have you ever heard the, the band Frank had called Gear Jammer? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Tom Hazelmeyer, of course, from yep. Amphetamine Reptiles, Halo of Flies, and Bill Hobson of Killdozer. Yep, yep. They put out a, a couple of singles, maybe even three on Amrep. Yeah, I think maybe two, but I could be wrong. Okay, Life But How to Live It. The album's Day by Day. It's on that concurrent label. They're Norwegian, kind of riffy punk rock, really great songs. Life But How to Live It. Here's a recommend from our podcast pal, Michael T. Fournier. Lithics. The album's called Tower of Age. It's brand new from Trouble in Mind Records. It's their third record. It's really great post-punk from Portland. How do you spell that? Lithics. L-I-T-H-I-C-S. Oh, okay. Like like the lithic structure or the lithic layer. I gotcha. Lithics. Yep. And they're from where? Portland. Okay, cool. Yeah. Here's one that's on the SS tree, also featuring Bill, coincidentally. The Lemonheads, self-titled record from 2006. Just an awesome record. I am a total, unapologetic, mega fan of the Lemonheads, in particular the record It's a Shame About Ray. But this one has really great songs and a few written by Bill. Bill's on drums. Carl, again, is on bass. Carl Alvarez. Spot plays on a track. Jay Mascus plays on a few. It's a really good record. Yep, agreed. Yeah, it's it's the same as that last record, like Bill and Carl or the rhythm section type thing. Yeah. Okay, Ryan, here's a recommend from you, kinda. LKN has a split with the band Knife the Symphony that I checked out. Yeah, man. It's okay. Didn't quite grab me, but that cover of On Your Knees is really cool. Told you. Yep. Okay. Lubricated Goat. The Great Old Ones. Amazing Australian noise rock. This is kind of their comeback record from 2003. Little Bob Story. A French band, but they were associated with the English pub rock scene from the mid to late 70s. They sound a lot like Dr. Feelgood. The record's produced by Sean Tyler of Ducks Deluxe and Tyler Gang, who passed away in May of this year. There's a, actually a book that I read about recently in uh, that classic rock magazine. There's a little article on pub rock, and they, they reference this book called No Sleep Till Canvey Island that I missed. It's by this guy, Will Birch. This is the same guy that wrote, wrote that Nick Lowe autobiography that's out this year, or biography. Hmm. Uh, he also wrote an Ian Dury book, which I have, but I, I've never read. Okay, L7. And this is the letter L and then the word seven. Have you heard about this record, Ryan? Just came out on Third Man? I don't know about that one. What is it? Okay, so the original release that this band put out is a single 
on Touch and Go Special Forces, which was envisioned as an offshoot of Touch and Go by Corey Rusk and Larissa Stolarchuk of L7. This is not the uh, all-girl band L7, just to be clear. Uh, This ended up being the only release on this offshoot. Third Man has released a full length with the single and a bunch of unreleased studio and live tracks. Larissa would go on to form the band Laughing Hyenas. Oh, no way. Yeah. So it's called the letter L and the number seven? The word, the the word seven. And the letter L and the word seven is the name of the band. That's right, yeah. No, no, Okay. like L7. They're called L7, but it's spelled the letter L. L Oh, L-7. Yes. Okay, I know what L-7 is. All right, now I got it. (laughs) That was so confusing. (laughs) Sorry, I was trying to distinguish them from the the Smell the Magic uh, band L7. They're not L7 like you're square, you're L7. They're L-7. That's right. Got it. Yep. Yep. Great early post-punk. Mega fan Steve Shelley actually helped assemble it all. It's really cool. It's a great package. Okay, here's one on the SS Tree. Lost Breed. Doomy, obsessed style, heavy rock band from California. Couple of albums in the early 90s on that Hellhound Records, which is the great German doom label. Prior to settling in on their main vocalist, their singer was Wino. He did some demos which came out later as Wino Days. And they they cover Motorhead's Iron Horse. He was only in the band for about nine months. This was after he left Vitus for the first time in 1988. Lost for Words, Prey. Uh, Their one and only full-length, great thrash crossover from NYC. I've been listening to a lot of that stuff because of that Crossover the Edge book. Did you ever watch uh, that thrash metal doc I told you about? No. Blood on, blood on the stage or whatever it's called. What's Murder it called? in the front row, I think. That's, yeah. <laughs> I was close. Yeah. I was close. You got to watch that. I'm I interested will. to see what you I think. Um, you know what? There, you, you asked me, I think, was it, what did you ask? If there's overkill or obsessed in it? What were you asking SST me? overkill, I was curious about. Because right. it's, it's a Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. There is a... I don't think it's the same Overkill, but there is an Overkill documentary out as well, too. Yeah, that, the... that'd be the New Jersey Overkill, probably. Yeah, 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 yeah. You like both, though, right? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, okay. Lid, In the Mushroom, 1997 Peaceville Records. This is the project Eric Wagner did the first time he left the band Trouble in 1997. It's more rockin' and psychedelic, more like a precursor to what he would go on to do in his band Blackfinger, but it's really cool. Had to get my favorite L band in there, Lazy Cowgirls. Third time's The Charm Again, 1991 comp on the great Australian label Dogmeat. Here's one on the SS Tree, Ryan, The Leaving Trains, Amplified Pillows. Live stuff from over the years with many different lineups. Pretty similar, actually, to the Always August compilation that I just mentioned. Great liner notes from Falling James. It's from 2004 on Steel Cage Records. Ludacrist, Power Trip, 1988 Combat. I mentioned them last week as they, they have a Robert Williams cover. This is the band that would become Scatterbrain. Goofy, kind of jazzy thrash. Scatterbrain was a bit funkier, almost like Faith No More influenced. 
They had that song, Don't Call Me Dude, which I still love their record, Scatterbrain's record, Here Comes Trouble. Okay, here's one on the tree that I bet you have, Ryan. The Lucky Sperms, The Man 7-inch. 1991, Ecstatic Peace Records. It's Kim Gordon, Lee Ronaldo, Steve Shelley, and Watt doing Walking the Cow and a Beatles cover. Artwork by Raymond Pettibone. Yep. Also, Steve has added the Chicone Youth album to Sonic Youth's Bandcamp. Laughing Clowns, Cruel But Fair. It's the it's the complete recordings. Jazzy post-punk formed by Ed Kuepper after he left the Saints. Yeah. Good stuff. It is good stuff. I agree. I like those records. Last Exit, self-titled. 1986, heavy, scronkin' free jazz insanity. Total supergroup, Bill Laswell. Yeah. Uh, Peter Brotsman on sax. I've, we've talked about his guitar-playing son, Caspar Brotsman, before. Ronald Shannon Jackson, who's played drums with everyone. And Greg Ginn fave, Sonny Chirac on guitar. Yeah. Are they, are they almost all on Laswell's label? I'd say so, so, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, I think so. I did, Ryan, the Led Zeppelin album, Physical Graffiti. I bought all of Jimmy's reissues a few years back, even though I owned all the records. Worth the money for sure. They sound so great, cranked up live. The drum sound and the overall production still, to this day, is the gold standard for rock recordings, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I bought both of the Led Zeppelin box sets and it's it's that one that has the um the, the weird circles. kind of crop crop yeah. circles yeah exactly and it's like the size it's this it's a 12 inch box set the size of an LP they jumble around all the album tracks and then if you want to get you know the rest of the album tracks you had to get the second box set and i've just been i've been putting it off for you know 30 plus years to buy the album so that I can listen to all the songs in the proper sequence. Yeah. And, uh, I am, I'm long overdue, but I, I know my, my other buddy, uh, mentioned that the, the, uh, the re-releases and the remasters are just insane to listen to with headphones in particular. Oh yeah. They're great. And I mean, you can get the CD versions for dirt cheap if you shop around. Yeah. Oh yeah. I know. Yep. Okay. Here's one on the tree. Libyan hit squad. Oh, nice. Full Circle, which is a split with Round Eye, who have a new album out, Ryan, called Culture Shock Treatment. What? Yeah. I got to check that out. I like them. The title track to this record, Full Circle, has Greg Ginn on it doing his thing. It's on that label, Ripping Records, we've talked about before. Remember, Ryan, Ghost Aquarium? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I got their stuff. I know you do. Fans of Weeding Out Era Flag will dig this. Libyan Hit Squad. And I think Round Eye have some or all of the same members. Yep, they definitely share members. And there's a Sudden Death Records connection too, isn't there? Round Eye have a record on Sudden Death. Yep, their previous one, I think. Joey Shithead's label. Yep. Okay, you'll notice a theme with this next recommend, because this is right in my wheelhouse. The last... Rock and Roll Band. Self-titled record. It's a one-off from Honest John Plain of the Crybabies and the Boys and that Ian Hunter record I mentioned a few episodes back. Casino Steel of the Boys and all those bands. 
a bunch of other musicians from that scene. It is just a killer record, uh, you know, from the, the Dolls Thunders school of rock and roll. It's great stuff. Speaking of that, the London Cowboys. Do you know them, Ryan? I don't. I know the... Wasn't there a Canadian hair metal band called the London Choir Boys? They're not Canadian. Oh, they're not? No. Where are they from? They're from, the like, the UK. Oh, okay. Oh, really? They're British? Yeah. They're still yeah. going, and they're great. They're just... They dropped the London and just became the Choir Boys after that, but they're awesome. So what's this they're one? Not a hair, they're not a hair metal band, though. They're like... They're like the Faces or something like that. Okay, okay. I'm not going to debate hair metal with you. What, what's the name of this other one? The London what? London Cowboys. Cowboys. Okay. Again, from the Dolls Thunders school. But a little bit of clash in there. Terry Chimes actually played drums with him for a while. It's that guy, Steve Dwar, who um, was involved in the band The Idols with Jerry Nolan and Killer Kane, the band that backed up Sid on the Sid Sing oh. stuff. Kind of a revolving group of musicians. You can get a two CD comp called Relapse that's really good. And it's got the Idols single on it too. And speaking of Jerry Nolan, I should mention the, uh, that we lost Walter Lure. Have to get that in there. I'm a huge fan of, of the Heartbreakers and stuff, as you know, Ryan. Yeah. Legendary Pink Dots. Do you know them? I know the name. I've not checked them out. Should yeah. I? Well, I don't really know too much about them, but I want to learn more. They're like a Dutch experimental rock band. Uh, I I do want to get to know them better, but it's going to take some work. They've released over 40 albums. Oh. I, did, I did one from 1990 called Crushed Velvet Apocalypse, and it's really good. So I'm on the legendary Pink Dots for sure. Okay, Ryan, here's one that's on the tree. Lydia Lunch, her album with Roland S. Howard, who we mentioned last week. He's got records on SST. The album's called Shotgun Wedding. Killer stuff. Speaking of Led Zeppelin, they do In My Time of Dying on this record. They do Black Juju by Alice Cooper. And they do the song Burning Skulls Rise, written by Jeremy Gluck, which is on his uh, I Knew Buffalo Bill record that I talked about a while back. It's been reissued many times, most recently on that Australian label, Bang Records. Another one on the SS Tree, Ryan. <laughs> I'm all over the tree this week. Leopold, The Wreck of Hope. Listener Eddie Rivas sent us this uh, killer record and a really great single also. Lynn Johnston of Cruel Frederick and Slovenly plays on it. And also Jack Brewer's on a track. You can find it on Spotify. Just search the title. There's a few Leopold artists on there, so search The Wreck of Hope. Awesome, noisy, heavy rock. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, you, uh, you you sent me a copy, and man, I just, it's really, really good. I have to I have to admit, though, I love the name, too, because it reminds me of Bugs Bunny. I know. You know that, Leopold. You know that one? Leopold. 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 <laughs> I thought the same thing. Uh, yeah. I, But I texted you, and I was like, you're going to love that record. Oh, it's good. Yeah. I, I, was, I was just cranking the single uh, this morning, and I was spinning the CD yesterday, so it's, yeah. I definitely like it. 90s noise rock sounding stuff. Like if you're a fan of any of that stuff, and I mentioned that, that stuff every second episode, yeah. and uh, it's it's awesome. Check out Leopold. And also rewatch that episode of Bugs Bunny because it's hilarious. Yeah. Thanks, Eddie, for sending that stuff in. As soon as I heard it, I was like, oh, Ryan's just going to be all over this. Oh, yeah. I can't believe I didn't know about it. It's so good. Yeah. 
Speaking of bands you're all over, I did Le Thugs, Electric Ooh. Troubles, their second one from 87. French punk rock. They've got stuff on Sub Pop and Alternative Tentacles. Yeah. Everything is solid by them. Everything. I did another Legal Weapon, another band I'm kind of low-key obsessed with learning more about. 1982, Death of Innocence. Too many musicians in and out of that band to name. Mainstays are Cat Arthur and Brian Hansen. They were managed by the Spaceman. Remember? Oh, no way. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. That's it, Ryan. That's my L section of get this shit off my phone. Wow. Lots on the tree. Nice one. I've got a few to check out. Oh, hey. Right on. I, I checked out Kowloon Walled City, too. Oh, okay. Give me a report. Well, I, did, I did that record that you, you told me to listen to that I can't remember the name of. Container Ships. Yeah. So good. And I watched the videos that you sent me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, there's things I just love about it. Like the riffs are great. The down tuning is awesome. You know, is obviously super cool. The rhythm section is really impressive. The way the drummer and the bass oh, yeah. player play together. You sp- it really stood out on that video you sent me. So it's good. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Check out, they haven't put out anything for a long time. And man, I just been, uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the plague, but I've been really into that heaviness lately, and um, I don't get tired of their records. But I'm glad you checked it. That was a re-recommend from last week. Yeah. Okay, thanks again for bearing with me, Ryan, while I get this shit off my phone. Yeah, man. Very therapeutic. Can I can I give you a couple of uh, quick spielage? I got two for you. Yeah, hit me. Okay, quick watt update. In addition to the sock tight record being officially released for the first record store day drop this, uh, this past weekend, another Watt related release came out by Ivan, the tolerable and his elastic band. Do you know Ivan, the tolerable? I did check it out when I saw that Watt has a release with him, but I don't really yeah. remember what it's, what his other stuff sounds like. Yeah. I've got to dig more deeply into it. It seems interesting to me, um, and, and it it's definitely very eclectic. Um, but just the name, Ivan the Tolerable and his Elastic Band, has all of these obscure references to other music that I like. So I definitely need to dig into Ivan. Mike is on his new record called Out of Season on Stolen Body Records. Just came out here end, end of August. Um, worth checking out, I would say. Watt, though, um, appears to only be doing vocals and only spoken word vocals mm-hmm. over the uh, the music. So it's a unique piece, but um, it looks like it's it's very nicely put together. Um, I, I listened to the one kind of uh, freebie track, and it's uh, I'm going to check out a little bit more. I, I could get in the mood for some Ivan the Tolerable, I bet you, from now and then. So i got to check that out. Hey, Ryan. Uh, Yo. Can, can I just make a suggestion to your do it to your watt spiel? Sure. You've you've done a few watt spiels now in the last couple of weeks. Can we have a name for them like Watts Up? Watts Up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I prefer not to say Watts Up. <laughs> <laughs> how about how about Watts going on? Okay. Or taking a walk with Watt. Sure. You take that away. <laughs> I got to woodshed that? Yeah, woodshed that. Okay, Okay, I'm going to woodshed that. All right, okay, quick. Last spiel. I want to get to some descendants. 
Um, and I have to address the elephant in the room here, Brant. We haven't mentioned this yet. Um, and it's maybe because it is as big as an elephant. Literally, it's the new Bob Mould distortion box set. Oh, yeah. That was released. And is it out? It's not out until October, as, as I understand it. And it's there's two versions. There's like the, the vinyl LP version that has less songs on it. And then there is the CD version that has over 20 discs on it. And it even includes... Um, his more electronic music records. And so the elephant in the room, though, really is like I've been having a Twitter feud with myself over this box set because I can't decide if I if I almost already have all of it, whether I now need to buy this box set. There's so, like one disc of rarities, right? There's one, yeah. And I mean, I I also think there's a couple of live discs on there and I think one of them I don't already have but it's one of those things where when artists you love and you've been you've been following them your whole life since you you know hit puberty and then they re-release everything it's like is it worth it is it worth well, it you know Ryan you could just buy those songs on iTunes or something no 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 no, no. I need the physical copy what about well, this? There's your there's your problem right there. What if I what if I buy the box set and then I trade in all the old discs at the used record store? How about that? Well, I already know that's what you're gonna do. So okay, done. Twitter feud over <laughs> with myself. Okay, Brant, do you have your bonus cup? I do. Let's do this. Mug mug mug. History lesson part one. All right. As mentioned, we had the Descendants All record on the show on SST 112, and we had Milo on there as well. We were very lucky to have Milo on. Um, it's funny, I like getting ready for this episode. I went back and re-listened to that. I've never, ever re-listened to one of our episodes ever before, <laughs> ever. I, I, I only listened to it when, when doing editing, and that is more than enough. To yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, it's just like... My God, it's going through the gulag. Um, it's pretty harsh listening to yourself and editing it. But um, <laughs> I re-listened to it because I know I gave a spielage on the history of the Descendants. And everyone should go back and listen to that. But man, I was sick that episode. You can tell in my voice, it's like I was I was dying. But I hung in there for giving um, a, a spielage on the history of the Descendants. Pretty high level, pretty quick. Also mentioned, though, in episode 112, again, go back and listen to that for a bit more of a deeper dive, uh, mentioned that another great source, of course, is the Filmage documentary. It's great, and it, it actually covers some of the topics that we cover in the interview with Bill, but not to the same, it's not the same deep dive that we do in the interview here with Bill. Um, Bill does some some serious diving to the briny deep on Milo goes to college and before in the, in the interview here, um, the kind of just cover it really quick in the filmage, um, documentaries, but check it out. Cause it's one of the best punk rock documentaries. Oh, of all, of all it time. is the best. It's the best. It's the only one I've watched multiple times. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know what? I, I have rewatched We Jam Econo a ton as well. Yeah. That one's good. That, You're right. Yeah. But, but filmage, they did one hell of a job on it and it's not because it's the descendants it's not because you know this is a descendants episode bills on it is a legit 
objectively great documentary. So check that out. The other thing that uh, I mentioned in episode 112 that people can refer to um, as a source of some Descendants history, of course, is the All Greatest Hits CD on owned and operated recordings. Um, That's Bill's label. It's got the All and Descendants family shrub on it. And you can follow all of the iterations of the band, but maybe not the first iteration of the band. And you'll hear about that in in the interview as well. Just as a a quick reminder to get us up to Milo Goes to College, they put out the the Ride the Wild single 1980 on Orca. And we will get to that on SST 145 here in a few episodes on the Two Things at Once compilation. That reminds me too, I was was thinking... um, you know when we were doing those comps a, f- yeah. a few episodes ago, we were talking about, you know, the importance of a comp. The right. the two things at once comp is huge in my life. Like that yeah. that's that's the first time that's the first way I heard all of these descendant songs. Super huge. Yeah, me too. Me yeah. too. Two things at once. Huge. I and I'm sure like I'm sure I had it for the first time dubbed on cassette from someone else. And and then I probably spent $27 Canadian at HMV for it finally on CD. And it's the same one I have today. Um, then they put out the fat EP 1982. We'll get to that on SST 145 as well. And also SST 212. And then we hit, also in 1982, Milo Goes to College, originally released on New Alliance Records. And just some quick detailage, Brant. Can I give you some detailage? Please do. Okay, detailage. Again, first released on New Alliance. There are several pressings that came out on New Alliance and uh, SST. Mine, I think, is the 1990 pressing when I look at the runout grooves on it, because it's got... Um, a particular number and the barcode, um, according to Discogs anyways. It was recorded in June 82 at Total Access, Redondo Beach, produced by Spot. And we've got Tony Lombardo on bass and Frank Nevetta. This is this is the Tony and Frank version of The Descendants. Um, this is also the last record with Frank. Um, he moved to Oregon after, and after, you know, Bill tells the story in filmage um, as as well about how Frank just basically burned all of his equipment and moved away. Um, but they they remained friends until his un, uh, unfortunate passing away later. Hey, I wanted to mention too. Do you know the band Spiffy Brandt? Yeah, I do. Tony's band. Spiffy, Tony yep. and Ray Cooper's band. Yep. They've got uh, two singles, both recorded by Bill and Stefan as well. And yep. if you're as as big a fan, like I'm a bass player, and if you're as big a fan of Tony Lombardo's bass playing as I am, and you want more, and you want more than the, the Descendants records and more than the Tony All record, you should check out Spiffy um, because it's super Tony and uh, worth checking out for sure. Yeah. And uh, the lead singer, do you know who the lead singer of Spiffy was, Brent? Hmm. I do, but it's not coming to mind right now. Joel Bratton from Rhino 39, dude. There there you go. Yeah. So check out some Rhino 39 while you're at it. Milo, of course, after Milo goes to college, this particular record, or, you know, around that time, announces he's going to go 
uh, to school. He goes to study biochemistry in San Diego, I believe. And Milo goes to college. It's released and it's huge. In, in the documentary filmage, Watt says people were just blown away by it. And he describes the songwriting on Milo Goes to College like little films or little adventures. Uh, Dave Nolte in the documentary uh, calls Milo Goes to College their Sergeant Pepper. And, you know, like, it's a pretty key record for them. It's, it's how a lot of people first heard the band from our generation, right? Because they hadn't reformed yet. They hadn't yeah. done the Epitaph and Fat Records albums. You go back to Milo, I Don't Want to Grow Up, uh, Enjoy, All. Like, those were our records, you know, and I'm talking us folks in our 40s, I suppose, you know, when we first got into it. But right. you cover this with Bill in the interview as well, in that the Descendants kind of straddled the early L.A. scene and the hardcore scene, and I was reading a, a, a bunch of reviews and descriptions of Milo Goes to College, not just talking about how important of a record it is, but they also reference this over, you know, kind of the straddling as well. So um, I thought I'd give you a few a few spiels from some of these reviews um, and books that I tracked down mentioning Milo Goes to College at, before we get into the interview with Bill. How about that? Sure. Okay, so I'm going to do lots of reading here, man. Some readage. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. From the Spaceman, first, SST Catalog. This is the description of Milo Goes to College. Milo Ackerman goes to college and in the process leaves the descendants with one of their most bonus albums ever. Bill, Tony, and Frank bid Milo a hearty bon voyage with parents, Kabuki Girl, Bikage, and 12 others. So that's the spaceman talking about Milo Goes to College. But I thought Andrew Earls actually had a pretty darn good spiel about Milo Goes to College and Gimme Indie Rock. In fact, it, it really, I think, hits a lot of the key points, actually. Um, it says here about Milo Goes to College, if hairs are to be split, Descendants should be known as the first band to consummate the relationship between timeless pop hooks and authentic hardcore ferocity for the duration of an entire album. So true. The outcome predated Husker Du's progress in this area. Another similarity between the two bands is that both released debut seven inches that betrayed what was to come. Also true. In the Descendants case, their 1979 Ride the Wild, It's a Hectic World rocked a hybrid of surf rock and power pop borrowed from the band's mentors, The Last. Very little of this carried over onto the 1981 Fat EP, which fires off five songs in less than five minutes. Schnitzel could be the fastest song by any band to date. Uh, the Fat EP serves as a good documentation of something that arose during the first two years that had just passed, Hardcore. But what happened between March 81, when the band recorded Fat at Total Access with SST's unofficial in-house producer Spot, and June 82, when the same team crafted what would be Milo Goes to College? Who knows? But Descendants leapfrogged over punk and used hardcore as a framework on which to apply their newfound penchant for timeless hooks. It's hope Myage, Suburban Home, I'm Not a Loser, Parents and Marriage are among the album's treasures, which resonated in the sounds of thousands 
of mostly California-based bands through the 90s. But it would be after that decade got mall punk and ultra emo out of its system before Descendants got their just historical desserts. Listener be warned, lyrical tales of utter failure in several social and romantic contexts are told in ways that would never fly in this post-millennial age of extreme PC sensitivity. So that's a killer spiel from Andrew Earls, if you ask me. Yeah, it is. I also found in... uh, So the Trouser Press has a whole like a ton of different editions right um right. i actually couldn't find anything that made sense to mention in any of the the typical ones so like the trouser press guide to 90s rock or trouser press record guide i found something though that make made the best sense for this episode in the trouser press guide to new wave brand okay new, new wave. Hey, you new wave exactly come over here so this this book is copyright 1983, and this is what it said about Milo Goes to College. With a black flag-like hardcore sound, clear, fast, coherent, this Cal Quartet, California Quartet, takes a largely non-political outlook, opting instead for lifestyle, subjects like sex, conformity, parents, marriage, love, and wasted youth. In doing so, the descendants add just a little extra to the typical formula and come off as a band that might outlive the genre, or at least get an education. And uh, how true that is, for sure, in yeah. terms of outlasting, uh, outlasting for sure, and getting an education. I also found something, I would have thought that The Descendants would be mentioned in that MC Strong book, The Great Indie Alt Discography. I couldn't find it, but that might be because the way that that, thing is set up that the the appendix and the table of contents is really crappy in there that might be agreed why. yeah agreed. <laughs> but i was able to find a mention of milo goes to college in mc strong's the great metal discography brand are you oh, ready ready I, for i a, have that one too you ready for a review of the descendants out of a metal discography <laughs> you know it it's, uh, it, it goes chronological in terms of their output, right? And it says here, uh, once it gets to Milo's, Milo Goes to College, the following year's debut album, Milo Goes to College, is widely regarded as a milestone of the genre. It's blitzkrieg, hardcore bop, equal parts, hormonal fury, pop genius, and teenage humor, bypassing much of the macho posturing favored by the Descendants' peers. Milo did indeed go to college. However, while Nevada and Stevenson also departed, the former replaced by Ray Cooper, upon Milo's return, the band re-emerged in the mid-80s with I Don't Want to Grow Up. So interesting there again, like all of these mentions are really talking about how Milo goes to college, it just ain't your typical hardcore record, right? And it, it really did kind of, I don't want to say that Milo goes to college, like began a particular genre, but it was one of the keystones for sure in what was later to come. I think that, that is fair. And then I just got one more from the Flex discography that I thought was really good. And this again is that massive uh, tome, the discography of North American punk, hardcore, and power pop. Right. 75 to 85, it says. Their first LP, recorded before Milo went to college 
and the band went on hiatus for a few years. Musically, this picks up where the Fat EP left off, but instead of the fast hardcore blasts, remember Bill will mention blast beats in a moment here, Brant. Yep. They rather focus on a more melodic mid-tempo hardcore sound, blending the anthemic OC sound with a goofier, light-hearted approach. These songs aren't completely silly or nonsensical, though. They definitely have a lot of pop appeal, but also show traces of the more serious, violent beach punk of the early 80s, a classic album. And, you know, it's interesting hearing the interview from Bill, too, because when I got two things at once and were, was listening to these songs in particular off of Milo, there are, there are statements and phrases in them that really resonated with me as a kid that maybe don't necessarily relate to the actual topic of the song or the story of the song. But, um, you know, parents, I don't want to be stereotyped. Um, I'm not a loser. All these songs, like they were pretty darn important to me as a kid. And they were definitely different than a lot of the just, you know, let's, let's go get, crazy and getting fights and get drunk type of uh, punk rock that was around at the time. So that obviously like what I'm getting at is these reviews and, and my own personal experience with the record, it really shows how different it was and how important it was for me anyways. Oh, well different for me. And I'm sure for you too, because of the, the girl songs. Oh yeah. <laughs> that was, that's what it was for me. Yeah. Cause I was a hopeless romantic. So yeah. So killer. That's some uh, spielage and detailage about um, Milo Goes to College. I have a few things, actually, that I found, Ryan. Nice. So there's a mention in the Craig Ibera book, A Wailing of a Town. Yep. Because they Watt goes through the first, I don't know, 20 or so releases on New Alliance. New Alliance, yep. And and uh, we should actually mention that this, this was obviously originally released on New Alliance in 1982 on LP only. It's New Alliance Records 12. We're obviously talking about it because SST reissued it when Greg Ginn bought New Alliance from Mike Watt in 1987. Watt says in that book, this is really important. This is our second full-length album that we put out. This is all Descendant shit. They brought this in to us. All the art. You can see where I did the typewriter on the cover, but that's it. Milo didn't want to be in the band anymore. He wanted to go to college. Then I also, Ryan, found a few things from this Filter magazine issue from 2013 called Milo Turns 50, like Milo Ackerman Turned 50. Right. So they, they did this issue where Mike Watt interviews the band and then Chris Sherry uh, interviews them as well. Here's Bill on Tony. He, this is, he talks about it in the interview and the documentary where they, how they, how Tony came into the band, but he, they heard him playing the telltale quick eighth notes that would signify he was a punker. <laughs> I liked that. Yeah. Here's Milo from that article on coming out of the fat EP and into the Milo goes to college area era. He says, I think with those songs, we were expanding beyond the kind of fast, fast, fast thing. There are some of the similar coffee-driven songs, but I know that melodically there was actually an attempt at singing and making more pop-flavored music. Obviously, we were, we all really loved that growing up with the Beatles and stuff. Should we throw it over to Bill? Let's do it. 
All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Bill Stevenson. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I want to start, Bill, with Milo Goes to College is the first record we're going to be talking about on the podcast, but I want to go back further than that and talk about the formation of the band. So if I'm understanding it right, the band was started by Frank Nevetta and Dave Nolte before you came in. I'd say that the concept of the band was, yeah, Frank and Dave, but as far as like having an actual active band, I feel like that would be me and Tony and Frank. Why did you decide to play drums? I think this started when I was four or five. Um, at When you're four or five, you're at about the height of the, um, you know, the cupboard that's below the stove where all the pots and pans are right and i would get down there and get all the pots and pans out and then i'd get the spatula spatulas and soup ladles and stuff then i couldn't reach the knives which is smart you know my mom had that part of it figured out but so then i would play on the pots and pans with the spatulas and the ladles and the like wooden spoons and whatever i could find just banging away on them and you know it was just predetermined when i was a little kid that i was always going to be a guy who was tapping on stuff and tapping out rhythms and then there was kind of a delay between those pots and pans and i didn't actually get a i got a snare drum i think when i was in eighth grade maybe or ninth say around eighth ninth grade and then maybe Maybe six months later, I finally got a drum set. But yeah, I just think it was natural for me as a way to work out my nervous energy. Uh, I don't know. I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of friends. I, I wasn't popular. I don't know if it, I, it wasn't that I was unpopular. I just didn't. I wasn't very social, and and I, no girls would talk to me and stuff. So I think I just that's how I worked out my nervous energy was on the drums. But then. You know, right around the same time I got my drums, my mom gave me this real old acoustic guitar that belonged to her that had belonged to her father. And so I started playing the guitar too right at that time. And then also right right at that time, I, one day I was taking my trash can out to the curb because it was trash day. Right. And I looked and my neighbor's trash can was out there. And they had a, it was an instrument sticking up out of their trash can. And I went over and pulled it out. And it was, I didn't know really what a bass was or, you know, but it was a hollow body bass. <laughs> so it, it could make, you know, a little bit of noise, even though I didn't have an amp. So I had my acoustic guitar, my hollow body bass and my drum set. And I was just playing all of them just happily, Frank. Frank showed me a few chords, and then I bought one of the, the little red book of chords. Um, but Frank showed me all the ones I needed to know. Mm -hmm. And there I was playing, and not it wasn't, I mean, I only dug that, I swear, I only dug that bass out of the trash, you know, three months prior. And then I had written Myage, which is, you know, crazy bass. <laughs> <laughs> Myage and Bikeage, you know, because that's got the Yep. I wrote all that shit when I was like 14, 15 with that bass I dug out of the trash. <laughs> and and um, yeah, so I was kind of working on all of them at the same time. I 
I, I'll say this. I've never been a, um, like a, a drummer drummer. You know guys that they have like a Zildjian T-shirt on and they have a sure. drum key on their keychain? Right. Those guys? Yeah. I'm not that guy. I just Drums are just kind of part of a band i guess i I don't i don't really even enjoy playing drums unless i'm playing with other instruments okay tell me about frank you went to high school with frank or does it go back even further than high school no not with frank it just goes back to high school not not before high school Mm -hmm. yeah uh let's see how how did okay i think I think in terms of the little tiny punk scene that was in the South Bay, so we're talking about like 10 people. (laughs) Uh, um, I think it went like this. It went uh, Keith, you know, Keith Morris from Black Flag and Circle Jerks. He, He and I had fishing in common. In that I was a super interest, I was super into fishing, and he worked in the fishing tackle store that his father owned. Okay, so Keith was getting me into things when I was like nine, ten. So pre pre punk rock, right? Pre punk rock. Yeah. And then also then like new wave and things, the Cars, and when those things came along, and the Stooges, and and then also of course punk rock. But one day I went, he. I told him that I started playing drums when I, you know, when I got a little older and I, I started playing drums and he, he told me to come to this party. There was going to be a party and it was almost across the street from the tackle box, from the tackle shop. The tackle shop was called Hermosa tackle box. Yeah. So it's confusing, but anyway, so, so, so I went to this party and it was, I had never played with a human before and they kind of wanted to play their own songs or just jam. And I, I didn't know how to do that. I wanted to play like Paranoid or, 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 or Mongoloid by Devo or something. Cause I didn't know that you could play your own songs. I just, I had just gotten my drum set. So I sat down there behind Robo's drum set and I played when it was Greg on guitar, Greg Ginn and Joe Nolte on bass. And, but then his brother, Dave Nolte was at my high school. And then I think after I after that party, I think maybe Dave Nolte kind of introduced himself to me a little bit. And and he and he told me that, you know, Frank was looking to start a band mm-hmm. or that he had kind of already started one, but he didn't have people to play because Dave Nolte was occupied with his band the last. Right. Um, but we did do a couple shows or parties where Dave Nolte sang some songs for us. Dave, not on bass. He he sung. And Tony played bass. And those are cool. I loved the way Dave sung so much. It was so cool. Yeah. And so, yeah, Dave was kind of our our fourth member in the beginning. And and I guess from a pure from a purist standpoint, he and Frank, that was the original inception. And I can't remember what they they actually had a name for that version of it. I want to say it was called The Sick. Like The Sick was basically Frank and Dave with acoustic guitars. Right. I'm pretty sure if I'm wrong, I'm not doing it to make it up. Maybe I'm just confused, but that's how I remember it. Was it it maybe the itch? The itch? Oh, did somebody mention that? Yeah, yeah. Who mentioned it? It would have to be David. I I can't recall where I saw that, but. Okay, maybe it's the itch. Whatever, you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. So that's how I met Frank at high school. And, but then he and I, you know, we had fishing in common right away. 
because he loved to fish. Right. And I had my little boat. You know, I had a teeny little boat at first, and then I got one that wasn't quite so teeny, but still very small. And we'd go fishing, and and you know, we went to Frank was down at his sister's house in Long Beach jamming with his brothers. They had their band, the Pagan Babies. And Frank heard someone playing bass down the alleyway, like five buildings down the alleyway. Someone was playing bass in their garage. And he walked down the alley, and there was Tony. And then, hey, we got a band. Tell me about the Pagan Babies. What who? What did they do? Were they Did they play original music? Ah, oh, they were so cool. They had the songs. Let's see. I can remember a lot of the songs. In the Swim, Look Into the Ocean, Duck is Making Motion. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> Man Without a Woman, Man Without a Woman's Like a Duck Without a Bicycle. And then, um, let's see, they had a song called Dairy Queen about about Mike, Frank's brother, give, having a crush on the lady at the Dairy Queen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was looking for a place to eat and a place to pee, man. Pee, man. Found a fast food joint just south of Freeman. Freeman. And when I looked into her eyes, that's when I fell in love with the Dairy Queen. Yeah, that was Dairy Queen. And then there was <laughs> uh, Mr. Business Person. Mr. Business Person and at the Pike. I met her at the Pike. Oh, yeah. At the, the Long Beach Pike was like a, this kind of big recreational area with amusement park rides and stuff, carnival rides. Right. And that was a great song. I met her at the Pike. Oh, yeah. At the Pike. Uh-huh. I met her at the Pike. Yeah, yeah. They had great songs. Frank was a drummer. Frank was playing drums in the Pagan Babies. Yeah, and Joe was on bass, and, he, and Joe sung the songs that Joe wrote, and Mike was on guitar, and Mike sang, sang the songs that Mike wrote. Okay. So Tony comes into the band. How long after that are you thinking about recording your first 7-inch? Oh, funny. We I didn't we didn't even know how to record or like that you could record. <laughs> I remember when I first heard Dave Nolte gave me a cassette of kind of like rough tracks of the last recording their album and I was like, "Whoa, I know I know people that that know how to record. Wow, this is crazy. We it's like we first we had to learn how to play and stuff. And uh so we we actually didn't really record kind of our first 20 songs. We kind of like we got sick of all those 20 before we really knew how to play and got our shit together. Okay. But however, we did get together before Frank died. We got together in 2002. And we did record those 20 first songs. Oh, yeah. So now, so there, I'm saying there's kind of like an album before, you know, Milo goes to college. Of, but we got sick of them before we sort of learned how to play well enough to record. But yeah, we have it recorded. And I'm going to try to get that all spruced up and released sometime in the near future. That's going to be fun. Some people are going to be so happy to hear all those old, 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 old ones. You know, our first. Like our first shows we played, it was those twenty songs. I was I was going to ask you because Milo mentioned it on a podcast interview recently that I heard that he was maybe doing some vocals on some of these songs. I didn't realize Frank was involved in that though. Well, we, yeah, I mean, we, it was me and Frank and Tony. We played it all. We played it all in two thousand and two. We played them all just exactly how we used to. It's pretty cool. <laughs> 
We didn't really spruce them up either. We didn't make the arrangements more fancy or anything. We just did them how we, how we remembered them from 78, 79. Wow. All right. Yeah, well, well, pretty cool. We'll, we'll look forward to that for sure. Okay, so flash forward yeah. then to the to the seven inch. Do you recall recording it? I kind of do, but it was so quick. It was like three, two hours, the whole thing, two hours. Right. And I was a little kid, and I was nervous. And my dad paid for it. I think my dad was even there, <laughs> and uh, Joe Nolte was there as as a kind of a producer, I suppose you could say. Right. Spot was the engineer. Oh man, I mean, I was so nervous I couldn't even breathe. <laughs> to be in a recording studio, what what is that, you know? <laughs> Red light fever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I just do that same little fill each time the thing comes around. You know, that same fill the whole time. <laughs> no, Bill I was did... afraid I was gonna drop my sticks if I tried a fancy one. <laughs> did you have a vocalist? prior to Milo, Cecilia Lorea? We actually had a couple people that kind of auditioned or that we practiced with a little bit here and there, or maybe even played a party or two or show or two with. Yeah, Cecilia was one of them. So Milo comes into the band. He was a schoolmate as well. And then you end up on New Alliance Records. Do you remember that conversation or how you ended up on New Alliance? I'm assuming it was from starting to play shows with some of those bands. Well, uh, okay, yeah. Black Flag, Minutemen, Saccharin, Descendants, uh, and whoever else I'm forgetting. I mean, we were all kind of huddled together. We would always be sharing the same practice rooms. And even we would just all sleep on the floor of the practice room. Either not, either people didn't have a place to live or they just didn't want to live at their parents or anywhere or just didn't even care if they had a place to live. And so we were always all clustered together. And, you know, so men and men, like, let's say at the practice room, let's say Black Flag would practice first, then Descendants afterwards, then men and men, or whatever order it might be. And so we were all together. We were all friends. And, and Mike was kind of starting his label, and he, he offered to put up, put up uh, uh, some money, I think, to record. I'm pretty sure he put up money to record us i think i can't even remember but anyway he said he would release the record and we were like whoa rad okay <laughs> and yeah okay so you do the song global probing for chunks do you know when that got recorded global plus the fatty p that all was recorded at one time okay same session and that's why global is on bonus fat or i guess that makes sense because ride the wild and heck twirl are on there too but anyway yeah Global Global was released first because it was on that Chunks thing. Right. But um, that they were all recorded at the same time. It was just in one in one evening, like we probably did it at, I don't know, 8 p.m. to 1 a.m., something like that. I remember Milo, we were so tired. Maybe it was 2 a.m. We were so tired. We were driving back from it, and it was me, it was me Milo, and Henry. Henry was just along for the ride just to check it out, I think. Right. And Milo fell asleep, and we got in a car accident. Oh wow! On the way home, yeah. And I remember because we got in a car accident where the free on the freeway, but the exit was we were in Watts, <laughs> um, and and we were like young kids, stupid right. kids, you know. But uh, yeah, yeah, I remember it. Wow! I, I had to borrow, 
I had to borrow cymbals from Grant because mine were broken and Grant happened to be in town. Oh, really? Grant Hart? Yeah. yeah. And I think Frank's amp was broken. Maybe he, Frank used Spot's amp. We didn't have, we just didn't have any gear. I don't know. We didn't know what we were doing, but we <laughs> sure had fun. Some of those early shows you played, you're kind of on that bubble like the Minutemen. You know, you're playing with those first wave Hollywood bands like the Alley Cats, the Plugs, uh, Black Flag, the Germs you played with, the Last, the Zeros, Fear. But then by 82, it's starting to change a little bit. And a lot of people from your era talk about that change. You know, you pl ended up playing with Suicidal Tendencies, for example. Did you feel that that change as acutely as some other people have described it? Uh, well, to be honest, I'm not even sure what change you're, you're meaning. Because, I, I mean, just to give you maybe another angle on it. Uh, to me, up until, up until 82 or so, 81, up until 81 or 82, it was like there wasn't a, a thing. Like every band sounded completely different. Like you just mentioned, you know, right. Weirdos, Alley Cats, Go-Go's, X, Screamers, Germs, Descendants, Minutemen, Saccharin, Black Flag. None of those bands sound like each other in any way. And I think punk rock got popular. Maybe it's because of that movie or I don't know, that decline thing or something. I don't know. But then there was like a million, million bands that all kind of more sounded similar. It was like it got it got popular. So people were maybe just trying to do what was popular instead of just being in their garage playing for fun and never even thinking that anyone was ever going to hear their band, which that was certainly the case for us. Right. Yeah, I guess that's what I mean. Is but what you know, change are you talking about? I I, th I guess that's what I'm talking about. Is you know a lot of the old, the Hollywood people say you know they kind of dropped off when hardcore started coming into it. Oh, hardcore! Yeah, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. I guess the point I'm making is you know you were kind of part of both of those eras, the first and the second wave, if if you want to call it that. Yeah, we kind of we we showed up a little late for the first wave, like the you know the bags and and man, oh man, I just used to love going to those shows. Holy, I still remember the first couple shows I went to. I mean, it was like five bucks. You know, it was like Go Go's, Weirdos, Germs, Flyboys. You know, five <laughs> bucks or something. It was just crazy. Yeah. How how it was so I couldn't believe it. It was like my life changed in like one two week period when I started when the first time I went to the mask and all that. My there was my life before that and my life after it. You know nothing has ever had a, such a big impact on me as going to those first few shows. I mean maybe other than say having children. Having children was obviously a huge impact on me. But other than that, I can't think of anything that had that huge of an impact on me. It was just it was just amazing to be to watch all that stuff unfolding. You could just sit there and totally watch. You could watch spit sticks, you know, just destroying a drum set from like <laughs> six feet away, you know. Right. It was unbelievable. And it's cool because he he started playing with them again. And me and Stefan were watching him on the side of the stage like two years ago. Right. And it's funny. He was funny. We started me and Stefan started hitting each other because we were so excited. And I had a flashback to like me and Frank would go see Fear and we'd always get right in the front 
and when Spit would start really working on it, like on Camarillo and stuff, me and Frank would start hitting each other, you know? It was like, <laughs> yeah, I still, I, yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, he posted a video online a while back of himself, of them in the jam room, and they were playing that intro to We Destroy the Family where he's down on the toms, and I probably watched it about 30 yeah. times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of your first shows were at the Cuckoo's Nest. What was that place like? It was cool. That that was, um, that was, oh, I see the change you're talking about. What you mean by the change, you meant when it switched from pogoing to like slam. Yeah. 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 Right. So those cuckoo nest, I associate that with some of my first memories of like real rowdy, real rowdy, like don't go in the middle because you're going to get a boot in the head. You know, right. Tony called him. There wasn't a name for what they were doing yet. I don't know where the name slammed at, but there wasn't a name for it. So Tony called them professional pogoers because <laughs> they're like hardcore. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's talk about the Fat EP for, for a few minutes. Okay. You'd mentioned some of the first songs you, you'd written, but you have some some writing credits on this one, like I Like Food is one of yours. Yeah. Uh, Wiener Schnitzel. A, a co-write <laughs> with your friend Pat. Can you tell me about Pat? Well, yeah, right. So hardly masterpieces, those two, but I don't know. It needed to happen. Uh Pat, he, I, I gave him a co-writing credit just because he's, he was kind of our fifth member at that point, or maybe our fifth wheel. Because on the one hand, he was always telling me to not go to practice because he and I had to go fishing. Right. He was my commercial fishing partner. Okay. But he was also the guy that said, like, hey, why, why are you guys writing songs about chicks? Like, that's not important. You should write songs about going through Wienerschnitzel because that's what we were doing every day was going through Wienerschnitzel. And that order – that order is our order. Like when me, <laughs> when me and Pat and Frank would go through Wiener Schnitzel, that's what we ordered, you know. And Pat would never order any food. He just ordered the large Dr Pepper because he was always on speed or Coke or something. Okay. Um, and you know, and he's the guy that forced me to invent the bonus cup because I couldn't stay up with him all night, night after night after night fishing, because he was on amphetamines black beauties or coke or crystal meth and i didn't want to try any of that so i started doing those bonus cups with all put like a half a jar of coffee grounds in the cup and (laughs) but um yeah so it was his he just said hey you should write a song about us driving through wiener schnitzel and so i mean that's all that song is it's just us driving through wiener schnitzel like we did every single day All right, well, that answers one of my questions. I was going to ask if it was a real place like Alfredo's or, or, or whatever. Uh, do I oh, want... Oh, you never heard of Der Wiener Schnitzel? No, I've never. It's a, it's a chain. Is it? It's a ch- I mean, they used to have them everywhere. I don't know how many of them are left now, but I know I think there's still a few of them around. Yeah, it was a chain. They had big TV commercials and everything. Like German food? Like yeah, German look up, sausages look up or something? Wiener, look up Der Wiener Schnitzel. You'll okay. see it. Okay. I'm scared to ask what the line... Do you want Bill Sperm with that? No, <laughs> no, to. Tony. See, we didn't we didn't think anyone was ever going to hear this stuff, right? right? So, because, I mean, with Ride the Wild, we recorded it, and all we did was try to sell it to people at our high school. No one, you know what I mean? No one ever heard it. Um, 
and so the same we thought the same with the fatty pea no one's so we just did it for us and no it was supposed to be do you want ketchup with that because for some reason rather than throwing ketchup in there they would ask you if you want ketchup i mean that's exactly what they would say do you want ketchup with that but when we actually recorded it okay and we did it live there wasn't no overdubs or anything and so tony said do you want bill sperm with that you know as a joke and we never thought we never thought about oh wow you just ruined the song, but maybe he made the song great because it's just so ridiculous. It just shows it shows how little we cared about what anybody thought of it or anything. Right. He, it was just that was Tony's joke to me. You know. Okay. You mentioned bonus cups, and I'm kind of I'm super interested in like Descendants lingo. So I'm I noticed the dead wax on the seven inch, like the inscription on the runout groove. It says bonus butt. So obviously, you know, the word bonus was already on what on what record on the fat EP. Oh, maybe that was maybe Mike said that that if there if, if I had been drinking those horrible thick coffees with all the cream and sugar in them that I had maybe I had bad gas. I don't really remember, <laughs> but yeah, the bonus cup is just those because the thing is. There was no readily available espresso back then. Not like now if you if you you trip over an espresso everywhere you go now. Right. But not then. You could if you wanted an espresso you had to go into an Italian restaurant and only certain ones, you know, that had it. Okay. So there was no Starbucks, none of that. So I kind of in in my head I had invented espresso because I didn't know espresso existed. Okay. So in my head, I invented espresso. And so this had the consistency of like picture a whole cup, a whole mug full of super, super ristretto espressos, Uh, you know, meaning very, very thick, not watery. And that's what the bonus cup was. And it was just so I could stay awake with those guys with and they had their their black beauties those little amphetamines. And I just didn't want to get into that. I have a, I'm a compulsive eater. I have a compulsive personality. I thought if I start trying that stuff, man, I know where that's going to head. Right. <laughs> With one of those guys that has three teeth left in their head. <laughs> the artwork on the yeah, first Yeah, the itch. The itch. You're right. The itch. Okay. The artwork on the, the fat EP is done by Frank and D. Boone as well. With the eating is believing drawing. Was Frank an artist? Wait, the eating is believing is D Boone's art? That's that's what it says on the liner notes. <laughs> it does? Yeah. Oh, I thought Frank drew it. I thought Frank drew it. He Frank wait a minute. Frank told me that that drawing was supposed to be an amalgamation of the four of us. Like all four of us into one character. <laughs> Are you sure D I don't know. I mean, you know more than I do. <laughs> I, could, I don't know. I, I can't answer that. I could be wrong. That's cool if Dennis. That is cool if Dennis drew it. I, I always thought Frank drew it. I mean, I was at his house when he was drawing the out the cover, but I don't remember about the back cover. Yeah, I, I think the D Boone drawing is on one of the labels of the guy eating the turkey. Oh, yeah. eating is believing. No, yeah. you're right. You're right. That's D Boone. I meant the like the like kind of guy that's on the back of the fatty pee the the human right right okay that, okay because no, Den- yeah. then that's frank yeah, yeah okay 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 got it got it got it got it <laughs> so i sure miss both of them i because i've been working on this 2002 
stuff, which is really like 1978 stuff. Right. I've been working on it this month with Milo and, you know, we almost, it's almost done and ready. COVID seemed like the perfect time to just go back and get it all done and release it. Uh, but it's sure it's sitting there, you know, doing a little editing because it was all live takes. Okay. We did no overdubs, no nothing, all live. So I did a little bit of editing, you know, a little bit of spit shining on them. And it's sure sitting there listening to them play. It sure makes me miss those guys. I miss Frank because he's, you know, he's he's passed away. But also, you know, that was fun, man. That original lineup of the band was so, uh, boy, that saved me from just being a miserable human being. I was such a miserable little kid. I didn't have any friends or anything. And those guys decided they'd be friends with me, man. It was great. Yeah. I can hear a real progression in your drumming on the Fat EP as compared to Ride the Wild. Were you really woodshedding during that period? Did you do a lot of practicing? We started practicing a lot, lot at some point. Yeah. But also it was just the coffee too because it's, it's also scatterbrained. But I do – I like to think – the one cool thing about the Fat EP is that I want to take credit – for having invented what they now call the blast beat <laughs> because um i think i was the first guy to just go like bah, 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 on every <laughs> drum at the same time and that's how that's how wiener schnitzel is you know two large cokes two yeah, large it's true. every drum at yeah. the same time and then also the chorus of my dad sucks I, so I want to say that I played the first blast beats, but if I'm wrong, that's okay. But, but I, I mean, I had never heard anybody play like that. You, you might be onto something there. Uh, that song, My da Dad Sucks, has a pretty complex drum pattern, actually, or the whole rhythm pattern, the way the band plays together is, is pretty cool. That's a, yeah, because it's, it's, it's like we put everybody plays every beat, you know, like kind of like, I don't know, Rossini maybe or something would, would do that. I don't know. The song, I Like Food, is that you at the beginning saying, I like food, food tastes yeah. good? Yeah. Yeah. I like food, food tastes good. I like food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, tell yeah, me. I'm just yelling into the snare mic. Oh, okay. Cool. Well, because that's the equivalent of what's the equivalent of one, two, three, four. Right. You know, I like food, food tastes good. And turn five, six. Dun, 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 dun. You know, that's how it was like to count us in. It's kind of like the fear thing, too. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Oh, man. Okay, tell me about. Bill, about the song Mr. Bass and your boat, the Orca. Did So you mentioned Frank was, was fishing. You guys fished together? Yes. Okay. Mr. Bass, it was kind of written, a lot of it's written about a particular trip we took to Catalina. One where it was me and Frank and Pat, the usual suspects. <laughs> <laughs> and this boat was way, way too small to be going across that channel into Catalina. This is a tiny boat, but we got over there. No oh man, we really got into some fish. One of the commercial fishing guys was nice enough to give us a big scoop of squid. So we had a bucket full of live squid, a barrel. I mean, like a gray, big gray trash can size barrel, you know? Right. And boy, we sure did catch a lot of bass. And then, um, and then we, Oh, it was so fun. And then we went on, we, we, then we, we beached the boat. We went on shore, but before we did that, we poached two lobsters from someone's lobster trap. And then we got on the shore and we made a fire and we cooked the lobsters. We brought butter with us. All the way. 
All we brought was butter, coffee, and amphetamines. So, so we ate the lobster, and um, somehow, oh god, I don't even know how to get into it. But anyway, our motor broke, so we we could have gotten home using the trolling motor, but it seriously would have taken eight hours, right. or ten ten hours maybe to get home. So our motor broke. Um, after we spent the night just laying on the ground in the island, we, we, we started to head home with the trolling motor. And this swordfish boat was going home, going to the same harbor we were. And he, so he just he offered to tow us. So we, he towed us home. And uh, that's kind of what, you know, it says we fished the island with a broken motor. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... and uh, and and then too, like with Catalina, where it's to steal some gas, we had this place where it was a boat launch, boat launch, boat hoist, boat rental place. Right. And but they left their gas in these fifty-five gallon drums. It was just behind this little wooden fence, like you might have in your backyard. And so late at night, when they were closed, we just hop the fence and fill all our gas cans up <laughs> from the yeah. And so that's what about steal some gas and fix the motor the much fun the motor only broke really the one time but i guess we made a big deal out of it because frank wrote about it and i wrote about it right now maybe it was a good motor it was a johnson 35 it was a good motor but it, we, it wasn't a fast boat you know 35 horsepower isn't very much right yeah maybe you don't want to talk about this because i don't want to spoil the project that you're you know that you mentioned that you're working on with these old songs but did you write more food-related songs for this record? Well, more. I mean, these were our first songs. There's not. It's not more. Like these were before the food songs ever existed. Okay. Yeah, like the food songs were written in like eighty-one, eighty, eighty-one. Right. But these songs were written. These songs were written. I mean, some of the. Frank's ones were written in like 76, 77. Okay. And Tony's were written in 78, 79. And I didn't know how to write songs back then. So none none of these songs we're talking about, none of them are mine. Okay, I see. So when you're doing but the no, fat there EP... Aren't any, there aren't any food songs. Okay. But when you're doing the fat EP then, were there more songs that you didn't include on the EP that kind of fit uh... the theme? No, no, whatever ones those were, those are probably part of these 20. I see. Um, I can't think of any. Well, there was there was Volcano Burger, but that wasn't a very good song. Uh, I can't think of any others. Okay. Are I you... mean, I loved Volcano Burger, like those chili burgers. They were great, but, but eh. Okay, so when you're playing live at this point, are you, what's, what's your set consist of? Like, are you playing songs that are going to be on Milo Goes In what to College year? yet? Uh, around In what year? 81, the Fat EP era. I think I think for Fat EP era, it was, we were probably playing, like we were playing the stuff on the Fat EP, and then we were probably playing almost every song on Milo Goes to College. Maybe, maybe there were a couple of those that got trickled in at the last minute, like maybe Tonyage came later, Maybe M16 came later. But then on the other hand, we were probably playing Pervert because that one came in. I don't, or, ah, shit, I can't remember. Well, but I mean, okay, so Parents, 
parents and statue, those two, and you know, they kind of have a different sound than right. the rest of the record. Yeah. Those two are from the original 20, okay. you know, I mean, I mean, we didn't, we didn't re-record them for this, this post posthumous thing or whatever you call it, this prequel. We didn't re-record them, but I'm saying those are kind of more what we sounded like before. If you think of parents, it's kind of like in between Ride the Wild and Suburban Home, you know? Right, yeah. In, ter- in terms of what we sound like. But that, that I don't even remember what your question was. <laughs> oh, what were we playing live? So we were probably, pl- yeah, we were playing the Fatty P and most of Milo Goes to College. Okay. Whatever stuff we had, which was probably most of it. Okay, so some of these songs, like Mayage, you've talked before about, you know, songs just coming to you kind of in, in dreams or when you first wake up or you hear songwriters talk about this, this happening to them. Mayage came to you in that way? I think all of your songs. No, my, my, my first songs weren't that way. They were the product of me sitting down with... The, that acoustic guitar that my mom gave me or the bass I dug out of the trash and kind of fiddling around with them and, you know, kind of putting songs together and just whatever was on the tip of my tongue. Usually those are just about some girl that I liked that didn't like me. Um, and, and that those were, none of those were, none of those were, you know, from that kind of dream thing, except maybe Gene is dead. The funny thing about Gene is Dead is it was it was an actual dream, but also, yeah, like it didn't happen. There's nobody named Gene because anybody knows anything about me. I don't I don't make things up. I don't I'm not a poet. I'm, what am I deep? You know, I'm, I don't make things up. I just write about what happens to me. But Gene is Dead is the single exception to that. And that you said that came out of a dream. Yeah, I just woke up and it was like it really happened to me someone that I had not paid enough attention to and then they killed themselves. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know, but it didn't actually happen. I hope that I shouldn't, I don't want people to know. It might make them not like the song, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. I guess it's normal for, for people to make shit up, but it's not normal for me. Yeah. We talked a little bit about Catalina. What I like about it is it kind of references fishing as an escape. Is that how you saw fishing? Or was it more about the commercial That's still aspect? what it is. That's still what it is. I'm going with my son tomorrow. It's it's still it's great. It's like the perfect thing you can do. It's like you do you can do nothing, but you're still doing something. Yeah. Okay. And then just to actually get in the boat and leave the shore. Oh, it's so liberating. We didn't have any friends and no no girls liked us. And that that some of those lyrics are me kind of lashing out at whatever girl I had a crush on at the time or something. I mean, we were just stupid kids. We didn't know. Right. Uh, the song Suburban Home, is that you at the at the beginning saying, I want to be stereotyped? No, that's Tony. Yeah. Tony's a busy bass player. He kind of, you know, wrote the blueprint for Descendants bass players to come. Yeah. He, well, we, we always loved a lot of melody in the bass. I mean, it was that way from the very beginning. Even Ride the Wild. Frank wrote that bass line and it's a bass melody against the guitar, you know, which is just, that's already really unusual. Yeah. It it was just something we really loved. Tony loved to play, play busy like that. He wanted to be like Diane Chai, you know? Um, I mean, we all wanted to be like the Alec. We love them (laughs) so much. 
and um, he wanted to be like Diane Chai and to be busy like that and cooler like the ruts, you know, you know, the ruts, you know, Babylon's burning. He loved that rut song. And, you know, then there was that first generation X album where the bass is crazy. We just loved the melody in the bass. And, and yeah, that definitely set the tone for, yeah, what we were going to be doing. Yeah. Right. It must've helped you as a drummer to have such a proficient bass player to kind of lock in with. It was, we just, uh, we had so much fun. I'm just thinking about that too. So one of these 20 songs I keep talking about, one of them is, it's a song that Tony wrote about Diane Chai. It's called, it's called, I'll never, I'll never make it through the night. And the bass line and everything, it's kind of like an Alley Cat song, the way that Maya, Maya is like an Alley Cat song. So this was, this was like another song like that. Um, with the with the cool bass and you know it's cool like that and the hi hat that stuff and it's about Tony being it's about Tony being envious of how well Diane plays but also he had a huge crush on her. Okay, it's about both sides of it. You know, it's both both aspects. The song Tonyage seems to reference kind of what I was talking about, maybe. You beat up Fear's bass player. You were all surfers last year. It kind of seems to reference the scene and maybe the the, oh, the knucklehead. Oh, that's the change. Yeah. Right. Now I totally know what you mean. Yeah, that is the change. That's like when it started not being fun to go to shows anymore. Right, yeah. But then even looking back at that, when I think about it, you know, Durf, he used to just, he used to just stir it up. So the fact that he got his nose broken – Really, in hindsight, it doesn't surprise me, but it's just lame that it probably happened from some jock that was just at the show because it was like the place to go to get drunk and it wasn't even really into the music. Right. Milo brings in an all-time Descendants classic for this album, the song Hope. Do you remember hearing that song and how he showed it to you? Well, when we first learned it, it didn't have lyrics. He just hummed hummed a melody. We'd, we'd play it and he'd hum a melody. Right. And he reminded me of this like a couple months ago because we were just sit, talking, shooting the shit. And he reminded me of this, that how it got its lyric and its title was when we were practicing it, I, he didn't have a name for the song because when you only have one song, you just say, well, let's play my song, <laughs> which is what Myage is. Right. I used to only have one song. So my song was Myage, you know. Right. Because we would say "idge" after everything. Okay, so um, I kept when Milo's song when we played it, I kept saying it's it's the song that inspires hope. So if you picture that song without lyrics and just with Milo humming the melody, right? And I said it it's the song that inspires hope. So we started calling it the song that inspires hope. And then, because I thought the melody inspired hope, just the melody, you know. Right, yeah. And then next thing you know, he wrote this lyric, which is, you know, "Someday my day will come." It's like it is, it is about hope. So it was cool. Yeah. That's cool. Your song "Bikeage," it's a pretty sad song. What can you tell me about the protagonist in that song? Ah, uh, it's just, you know, looking back at all that, it's just stupid, trite high school poetry. I. I fancied myself as a pretty, like a 
good, clean, fun sort of don't drink, don't do drugs sort of guy. I mean, at that at that point, almost almost in a puritanical sense. And I and I saw like a few girls that went to my high school just kind of I just saw them starting to get into dr- drinking and drugs and you know just kind of kind of went from being one thing to being another thing but of course I realize now that's just part of life but I I matured really slowly I matured really slowly I mean uh, on, on a psychological level or even a psychosexual level so I wasn't on the same page with all the other kids that were starting to do all that stuff. Okay. And I, so I wrote that song really, I mean, I, I, I don't, it seems to me to be an unwarranted, cruel thing to have written now that I look at it. In fact, I'm very, very close friends with the, the little group of girls that I kind of wrote it about. I, I'm very close friends with them, you know, mm-hmm. now. Right. So I, I feel stupid. I feel we both kind of laugh when we look back at that song. At the time, it meant it meant something to me. Now, that's the thing. Even if you change and you you don't feel the same, I mean, at that time, that meant something to me, and I think people could feel that. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's a you know, and it's a song that means a lot to a lot of people as well, and that that counts for a lot. I mean, I still believe in it. Like I, you know, I have a daughter, and I remember, you know, having those kind of thoughts about her when she you know when i would see her maybe taking a taking a left where she should take a right right so i i still i still know i still remember what that feeling was for sure but i think in my case it was back then in my case it was polluted with a heavy dose of like well i'm jealous i sure wish they were having a good time with me instead of having a good time with these drug addict dudes yeah we have our first depiction of milo our first official one anyways drawn by jeff atkinson based on earlier cartoons drawn by a classmate, and you'll have to help me with his name, Roger. Roger Dwarline. Tell me about these comics he was writing about Milo. Oh, wow. So Milo didn't didn't tell you about all this? No, I didn't ask him, I don't think. Okay, so, yeah. So Roger, okay, so you got to understand, there was this group of us that were in all the, um, what do you call it, AP classes, honors classes? Right. Um, this group of us, and we were kind of, we were kind of getting into new wave, I guess you could say, or you know, getting into punk rock or whatever. But but the but the the Milo character had nothing to do with that. Roger would draw this thing. It was fifty percent just totally making fun of Milo. I mean, making fun of him, making fun of him. But then it was also they were friends. You know, for for I think in middle school, Roger and Milo were best friends. But so Roger would draw these little these little four panel comic strips called the mishaps of Milo. (laughs) And it was just Milo doing stupid stuff. It's 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 funny. Milo used to carry himself a lot more like a kind of what you say is an absent minded genius. Right. Now he's more level-headed. I think I noticed it was when he had kids. He quit being the the absent-minded genius, and he started being like more like a normal guy. But you know, so is the mishaps of Milo. Milo would break his glasses and step on them, or run into a tree because he was doing some math problem. And so, 
So, and it was funny because sometimes we'd get, if you'd get into the class, say the teacher was on a smoke break between classes, and you'd get into class before the kids or before the teacher, and you could put a little Milo head on the chalkboard, <laughs> you know. So it's this thing. It had nothing to do with punk rock, nothing to do with Descendants. And so when when it came time to do our album, it was, of course, as always, it was Frank's idea. He goes, dude, let's put the Milo head on there, you know. <laughs> and also the name of the album, because Milo was, in fact, leaving the band to go to college. Right. And so there it was. It, again, we didn't really make anything up. It just, that's what it was. <laughs> All right. Brent, how much do you want to hear that record? The, the one... The 20 songs. I think he describes it as the album before Milo goes to college. Yeah, I got to hear it, that. Yeah. That, that, and you know, I mean, he, uh, Bill, Bill acknowledges that, you know, some of the songs on, uh, on Milo goes to college kind of have that transition phase sound from ride the wild, hectic world, global probing still have that kind of more jangly surf sounding vibe, I would say. And, yeah. uh, if that, and I love that, I love it. And if that record is that I need that record. What I want to hear is Frank Nevada's band, The Pagan Babies. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were into that. I love, yeah. I you know, like this is this is never ever ever going to be a slight to Stefan and Carl, but man, I love Frank and Tony together. I love Frank's um, his riffs, um, the tone of his guitar. Tony's uh, bass lines are amazing, and I mean, everyone you know, has stolen a ton of stuff from Tony Lombardo. But the thing that he always did for me anyways, not just the eighth notes, but the melodies that he would do, you know, really unusual melodies, um, not your traditional kind of major key melodies. He's got some minor um, mm -hmm. sevenths, some dissonant type of runs that he, he throws in there along with the melody that really gives it um, some complexity that again, that's what makes it so, um, you know, so recognizable, so important because it just like it, it spawned a style, right? For sure. Oh yeah. They talk about, he, Bill talks in the interview about some of those bands and it's true. The Alley Cats, the Ruts, Generation X, you can hear the influence for sure. Oh yeah. That, yeah. um, and that's, I think Bill mentioned Babylon's burning from the crack. Yep. Like, yeah. you can't beat the crack or grin and bear it for like yeah. those, those Ruts albums. I was totally, I was like, yes, yes, Bill mentioned the Ruts. Nice. <laughs> Should we do the tracks? Sure, man. History Lesson Part 2. Okay, Ryan, as I mentioned, this originally came out on LP only, but in 1987, SST re released it on cassette, LP and sometime in the 90s on standalone CD. As you mentioned, it's been repressed dozens of times. And it's still in print. I checked. It's for sale in the SST Superstore. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, track one, side one, is the all-time classic Bill Stevenson track, Myage. Stone Cold classic. When J Bill joins in on the snare, on that bass riff Tony's playing, it just takes me back every time. 
I love some of these songs, Ryan, so much that I'm almost at a loss for what I want to say yeah. about them. Oh, I know. I was trying to trying to kind of be all analytical this time when I'm reading through <laughs> it. And I'm, I mean, you know what I mean? Like I'm like, yeah. you know, oh yeah, you know, that one. The the backup vocals really stand out, and I'm just like, ah. Oh, yeah, I, I don't screw know. it. Everybody knows these songs and they're so awesome. Like, yeah, sometimes there's just nothing to add. Okay, track two, I Want to Be a Bear, a Frank and Tony song. I'm actually this week read some of the lyrics for the very first time ever. Like, I never read lyrics. Got your Jordache <laughs> jeans, do you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's some serious musicianship going on behind the jokes, though. Oh, yeah. In this band. Of course. And my favorite thing to do still when I'm listening to these songs is to do the Milo ad-libs from the Liveage record. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Along <laughs> with the studio versions. Yeah. Okay, I'm Not a Loser, written by Frank. A classic for sure. And lyrically, kind of a typical Frank song. Kind of lashing out at what I would have called jocks. Oh, me too. You know, Cruise down the boulevard, wasting mummy's gas while you're looking for some chicks on Friday night. Only goal in life is to smoke a joint. Decide how you're going to get laid tonight. Classic stuff. Oh, yeah. And that, again, like I mentioned it before, when I look back at it, it was like, I, I wouldn't have known it back then. But someone else saying I'm not a loser helped me feel like I wasn't a loser too, right? Yeah. All right, another Frank song, Parents. Bill talks in filmage a, a little bit about what he calls Frank's bitter resentment, and you can certainly hear it in some of these songs, including this one. And he says in his interview with us that this is one of the ones from that first batch of 20 songs mm -hmm. that they wrote. Okay, track five, Tonyage, written by Bill and Tony. Sounds like a fear song, kind of, to me. Lots of tempo changes, like you would hear in Fear. Very sophisticated considering the age of the band members. And the last line, Ryan, you spit on the urinals. No. <laughs> okay, track six, M16, written by Milo and Tony. Sounds like 70s punk, kind of like the Dickies or something like that. It's a cool song. Oh, yeah, that's good. Track seven, side one, I'm Not a Punk, which is a Tony song. You can kind of hear the hardcore influence a little bit, maybe. The whole record has a very live sound, like the count-ins and the strings kind of rattling at the end of the oh, tracks. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That's, I mean, that's such a huge part of what made this record seem real when you first hear it for the first time. It's like, yeah. these are real people playing these tunes. There's no veneer, anything like that. And, that, like, the rhythm, the beat in this song is is... You know, it's the blueprint for Southern California hardcore to come, for sure. Yeah. It's this rhythm right here. Bill on the kick drum, this is it. Yeah. Catalina is next, written by Bill and Tony. Mike Watt in the Filmage documentary says, this is the big swan song song about a voyage. <laughs> and it's great to hear Bill tell the story about this song. Yeah. I love the lyrics like I've I've got all the fish I need on the deck of my boat. I'll steal some gas and fix my motor. It's a it's a cool story that Bill tells. Very interesting rhythmic stuff going on in this song. This is the one for me that could have been on summary. I I I always listen to when I when I hear one of the songs that's on summary, 
I'm always like, I already, I don't expect, you know, like Suburban Home, for example, I don't expect to hear Statue of Liberty after it because I'm so used to hearing those songs off of the summary because that was, yeah. you know, such a classic for me. For sure. It's, it's another one of those ones that I mentioned before where, you know, it, it resonated with me, but not because of the story. Like the line, you can't tell me what to do. Like, I would I would just scream that listening, you know, biking around, listening to my Walkman with this song <laughs> on, you know, just like this is this is what I would I, I would rage against the machine to these songs, man. Yeah. All right. Flip it over. Suburban Home, a classic written by Tony. Tony starts it off. Uh, I'm sure they still play this at every show. For sure. Yeah. This is the one where I always have to throw in the liveage, Milo. Throw it in. Now. I want to. I want to be number five six two thirty nine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, track two, Statue of Liberty, written by Frank. This is another one Bill mentions of the original twenty. Yep. Tony's bass playing is just so insane. Yeah. Though. Yeah. I know, and you know what? It's got the like the best frank guitar solo in it where he's just cranking out that one note during the solo section just killer <laughs> man killer that's that is the epitome of you only play as much as you need to killer yeah track three kabuki girl written by tony you i can hear a ramon's influence or maybe it's just like the lyrics like don't say sayonara I want to see you tomorrow. The rhyme. That's yeah. That's that's Ramones. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, track four, "Marriage," written by Bill and Frank. Another cool song that probably doesn't get enough spins in the Descendants catalog. It's you know, a lot of these songs are really overshadowed by what I'll call the hits. Yeah, but how is this not a hit, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. But speaking of hits, the next one, Hope, written by Milo. This was my 16-year-old self's heartbreak jam. It's one of those songs that just rolls back the years for me every single time I hear it. I love how Milo doubled the vocals in this. You mentioned the minor chords from Frank. Like, again, pretty sophisticated playing, considering these guys were like, I don't know, 15 years old. Yeah, I got. I gotta think like it is the Southern California in their in their bloodstream in their veins. I gotta think because so much of this has got like a surf vibe to it, right? And yeah. and those chords, um, those scales, um, that sensibility and the beats and the rhythms. Um, and again, like the last had that coursing through their veins as well. They were influenced by the last. But I totally agree. You can hear it on the Ride the Wild oh, single for oh, sure. Oh, for sure, man. For sure. Yeah. Okay, the next one, Bikeage by Bill. They use this song perfectly at the end of the Filmage documentary. It's just so awesome. I've always totally loved this song. It's a top five Descendants all bass line for me mm -hmm. in this one. And there's some amazing bass lines. The middle eight in this... You're running out of breath again. That part is just, you know, hair standing up on the arms. Wearing off, wearing out, I can't think about it because it makes me sick. That part with the best snare roll ever right after that. Oh, yeah. 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 
Love that song. Damn, so good. And then we end it with Gene is Dead, more Ramones and Last Influence. The title of that is Total Ramones, Gene is Dead. Mm -hmm. What about the artwork, Ryan? Yeah, we should mention the the classic Milo pick here. Um, originally, you met you mentioned it in the interview. Originally designed to taunt Milo by Roger Durline. I'm gonna. Yep. I'm, I'm sure I mispronounced that, but Durline, Durline. The mis the mishaps of Milo. Yeah. <laughs> you should dredge that up and repress those. Um, yeah. But on this. Um, LP version drawn by Jeff Rat Atkinson. Interesting in the filmage video, though he's listed as Jeff Atkins. I don't know if that's a, one of them is a typo, but I think it's hmm. Jeff Atkinson. I think. Yeah, he gets interviewed in the documentary, though. They both do. Yeah. Jeff and Roger are like together at yeah. that point, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Again, also like. It doesn't get any more classic than that album cover. It just doesn't. The back, another Milo there. Um, this is like next to Black Flag tattoos. This is probably one of the most tattooed images in punk rock. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably right. Um, the back cover has another Milo on it without the tie on. And uh, it says, in dedication to Milo Ackerman, from the descendants and then it has a signature from each of bill tony and frank mm -hmm. any dead wax on the lp ryan not on mine again um and i couldn't i couldn't find it i have got i'm pretty mine is either like a 89 or a 1990 pressing and there's no dead wax on it there may have been on the new alliance version but i couldn't find it hmm. well then i guess the only thing left to do is head over to the ballot result Ballot result. So I've been kind of dreading this for the week because how do you pick? Well, I, we're going to get it again in three episodes. I suppose. <laughs> I guess. Thank goodness. And we've and we've got summary and we've got liveage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, could could you put if it's and the, wait a second, what did we put on for one twelve for all? uh clean sheets. clean sheets clean probably sheets. Yeah. yeah so i mean we pro since we're going to see this a couple of more times i'm going to throw my hat in for my edge then because it's just the first the first 10 seconds are they they just i don't know it's it's pretty much the best 10 seconds on the record for me yeah i don't know it's either got to be that one hope or bikeage for me i mean there's other great songs but yeah they're all good they're all good. We can do My Edge. You, why don't you pick? Go for it. Oh, My Edge. All those songs, man, are so great. My Edge just gets me so pumped every time I hear it. Well, that's it then. My Edge it is. Woo! Ryan, what's next week? It's SST 143, The Descendants LP, I Don't Want to Grow Up. We are continuing our quest for all. And Brent, is Bill on again? Yeah, Bill's on again, and it's just as awesome as this one we get into some black flag stuff nice i can't i can't wait for everyone to hear it it's just awesome oh dude and i love that record too i don't want to grow up we'll see you then hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod 
We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.